Yeah, hello everybody. Welcome to the seventh episode of the One Mate One Dude podcast. Today we have a very special guest on today. Uh, her name is Cece, and she is a postgraduate student at MIT. What did you think about uh, our interview with her, Joe? Yeah, it was um, it was pretty insightful, to be honest. Um, you know, we learned a lot about, I guess, her upbringing, um, what it was like to to deal with. I guess juggle many things as well um growing up with her extracurriculars and what kind of shaped her um into you know getting into such a prestigious school um right. yeah it, it was good to we also touched upon like i guess dealing with burnouts right and and making the most out of university life um especially at a college that is you know so rigorous and intense Right. Uh, her, her experience at her colleges, what she's working in. She, she also gave us a lot of uh, valuable insight into electric vehicles. So for anyone interested in that, definitely feel free to uh, give us a listen here. Um, right. Yeah. So stick around and uh, we'll catch you at the end. So today we have Cece here, MIT student, twin sister, cat lover, and just awesome human being. Uh, we do want to thank her so much for her time today. Um, right? How are you doing today, Cece? I'm good, Bill. Uh, yeah, it's great to talk to you and Joe. Thank you very much for being on board. Um, so how, how is everything with your, your course? I guess um, tell us a little bit about uh, where you are at the moment in terms of, um, I guess your course, your your current yeah. So current I am at my fourth year at MIT. I graduated a semester early with my undergrad in the fall, and am now doing my fifth year masters. And I expect to graduate from that in the fall of this year. And I am actually so it's funny that you go call it a course instead of a major, but actually here at MIT we yeah. refer to it as courses as well. Um, and every course is assigned a number. So my, my course number is course six, which is electrical engineering and computer science. Right. Yeah. Cause in the UK, we, we have to like kind of commit to like one title for like three, four years, even five, but in the States, correct me if I'm wrong, it's like you have a minor and a major, right. Or something like that. You can choose after a certain period. Well, it works a little differently uh, depending on the school, but at MIT, how it works is that you declare your major in the spring of your freshman year, and then you kind of got to stick with that. Um, the minors are kind of uh, optional. People can tack them on if they are feeling particularly ambitious, which I, I never did. I actually declared a physics minor my sophomore fall and then immediately dropped it because I realized I was never going to finish it. it. Yeah. I guess we can go over some of the burnout aspects a little bit later on in, in the podcast, but I guess it's, it would be nice to go through some of the periods before you started college and talk about, I guess, your upbringing, I guess, um, your, your journey from high school onwards. So maybe our audience might be curious what sort of what sort of lifestyle environment you were in um, before you got into to such a great school like yeah, MIT? Yeah, sure. So, so I grew up in the suburbs of DC in Northern Virginia, which is a pretty, yeah. I guess, like affluent area. And 
definitely has some of the best school systems, public school systems in the country. Um, and yeah, so the when I went to middle school, elementary school, it was a pretty relaxed academic environment, but still pretty high quality. But definitely my brother and I, my family, we were kind of the ones who along the way were like founding the math clubs and things like that. Like most wow. kids are kind of more into sports or making waves. Yeah. So we were, <laughs> we were definitely kind of the standout star nerds of, of all our schools up until about the eighth grade. But actually in, in high school, I think the kind of unique thing was that I went to a magnet that was specifically for science and technology. And oh wait, is, is mag magnet's not a thing, right? It's just an objective for you. No, so so a magnet school is kind of like you have to take an entrance exam to get in, and it was still a still oh, a public school, but you there's a admissions process, and they kind of right. take okay. a certain amount of slots, like four hundred people per year, from I think five neighboring counties. So, so it's just kind of a much more academically rigorous and kind of like prestigious in a way. So you think like being in that environment was a important factor um, for your trajectory since being in a STEM orientated. Yeah. Um, yeah. I actually have a kind of a lot of mixed feelings about my high school experience because only enough in in middle school when we were kind of considering whether or not we wanted to go to this place versus just going to the regular base high school and kind of being a normal kid in that sense my parents like a, a lot of people in the asian american community kind of thought of this high school the same way that a lot of kids think of their dream colleges sort of but it felt like kind of a pipeline to getting into your dream college because it's just of the prestige and the academic rigor and all these sort of opportunities to take classes that aren't usually offered at high schools. But we'd also kind of heard through the grapevine of a lot of sort of horror stories about the high school as well, where kids were getting like four or five hours of sleep every night, like super busy, just like wrecked all the time with academics. And I think I, I ended up deciding to go because I felt like I was up for the challenge kind of came out of middle school really with this drive to like prove myself to who or what I don't really know but just felt like I wanted a challenge and that you know it would be worth it and you could always drop out and like go back to your high school after a year or two if you felt like it was too much and didn't if it wasn't working out for you um and I actually ended up kind of at least th like thriving at least academically at this school like it I think I had a pretty like light time of it just compared to some of my friends, I think, who really ended up suffering from like anxiety, depression, like sleep deprivation. Um, but I. How old was this? Is, so this is regular high school. high school. Yeah. So like 13 to 17 or 13 to 18. Same. And yeah. This, so 13. Yeah. This yeah so. When you were 13, that was when you knew that was, was that when you were 13, that was the point where you had to make yeah. the decision to go. Yeah. Right. And you knew about, you knew about the 
incoming challenges and stuff but how did you feel like at that age of just I think that was the biggest then? decision I had to make up until that at point 13. of my life and the funny <laughs> thing is that I was a pretty mature kid I think and so I did feel like I did make that decision for myself and so I really have you know no regrets no resentments whatever and it also did turn out well for me but on the other hand, I think one of the big problematic things about that whole system is that a lot of kids at 13 are, you know, like just total, totally clueless and kind of get yeah. pressured into it by their parents who kind of see this as like a pipeline to success or something like that. And, and those, I think a lot of those kids are the ones who end up just getting totally burnt out under pressure at such a young age, like, you know, 15 year olds, 16 year olds who like feel like failures because they got like a B or a C in calculus or something, you know? Um, so l luckily that wasn't me, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I would say actually that high, this high school <laughs> was more rigorous than, or almost as rigorous, let's say as MIT, I definitely had a much, easier time at MIT my first couple of years because it did do the advertised job of preparing you for college. But I also often question, you know, whether that is necessary or healthy for a lot of people. You, you, you talked about maturity, Cece. Um, would you say you developed that uh, from a certain role model or did you have any anybody sort of um, helping you develop that maturity when you um, got by the time you got to um, that position at 13? I think that a lot of that is kind of just personality and like, you know, it's hard to say nature versus nurture, what, what comes out of it. Um, but I was just always kind of a pretty like mature kid. And, and actually it's funny because my people who know me would probably say that I've become less mature in a lot of ways in college but sort of jokingly um in terms of like being like serious or you know having more chill I think I was just always pretty like serious and also pretty lonely as a kid growing up because I was so different from most of the kids at school yeah. so yeah being in your head a lot I think you that, kind of yeah that is also a very interesting factor because it's like um people who sort of excel more in school and, and sort of are very, you know, technically sound and, and technically gifted, they tend to sort of, I guess, stand out like away from the normal crowd, which is, you know, nothing wrong with that. Um, with You mentioned that sort of loneliness, loneliness and that solidarity, CC. Um, I guess, how did you um, sort of... I don't know, how did you learn to sort of, I don't want to say dumb down, but um, just sort of fi find your way way to fit in, like, especially like as you've gone on to, to high school and into college now? Yeah, I think I'm really grateful for always have having had at least a very core, like a tight group of just core friends kind of. Um, and that was mostly in, in elementary school was my brother, my twin brother for me. And we had another friend who, I think the, I guess the factor that kind of got us to become friends at the beginning was the fact that we were kind of only two Chinese American kids in the grade. And so we were just always close and best friends growing up. Um, 
spot them out right in the distance. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I think I think that experience, you know, we were always very like loyal to each other. And in middle school, we kind of she found some other friends, and the the four of us were kind of there. There were ended up being four of us in seventh grade or eighth grade when we met up, and I had a really good time with them because we were all sort of slight social outcasts in in our own ways. I think, um, and it was nice having a group like that where you all feel very comfortable just kind of declaring that you're not part of the mainstream, I guess, you know, sort of saying that, yeah, we're, we're weird and we're proud of it. So, um, I think for me that that was a kind of turning point in, uh, in my social development, I guess there, there was a period of time when I did try to fit in and, didn't really work out too well, but sort of once I was able to find a group of people who also weren't super comfortable fitting in, but were, I guess, we sort of, you know, vibe with each other in that sense and were able to, yeah, you yeah. know, find our community. Is it, do you think like, perhaps, because maybe a lot of, I don't know from, from my personal experience is that when people end up in, you know, Oxford, Cambridge from a UK perspective, they've already had that mindset when they were super young, like, you know, early teens, like 13, 14, like they've had that ambition for many years before they actually get there. Do you think that your group of friends had that, you know, ambition in mind at quite an early age and it kind of helped you, I guess, motivate you for, for those teenage years to, to get into that? Cause no one kind of lands in there like accidentally, right? Yeah. Surely. It's funny though because i really did not do not think i grew up with any sort of expectation of that kind of success in terms of gaining admission to top schools or like getting great jobs or anything <laughs> i was always a pretty like unambitious kid i remember when we had we'd have like career like dress up as your future career days you know those that sort of dumb stuff you do in fifth grade or whatever i always had no idea i think i ended up wearing overalls and a straw hat and calling myself a farmer is because that's that's what we had at home and um you know in fourth grade i remember they had exercises of oh you know like write out what college you think you like want to go to and what what you think you'd want to study and like yada yada and i barely knew what college was at that point but i just kind of wrote down our, our state school and said i wanted to do electrical engineering actually but only because that was what my mom studied so it was the only major i'd ever heard of oh. and i actually i think, think that a lot of you know so i never really had a lot of never thought about that aspect of things for myself probably until i got into high school where everyone was kind of obsessed with the idea of college but it was sort of yeah, it was kind of external to me, I think, not really internalized, which is something that I'm grateful to my parents about for. They they always kind of, you know, were of the mindset that they had set up this 529 account, like a college savings plan, which would have gotten us free tuition for, or covered our tuition for state school. So they were always like, yeah, if you just go to state school, it's totally fine with us. Well, for the yeah. You're right. Well, you mentioned upbringing, Cece. Would would you say you were more of an environment that was um, so it wasn't as because you've heard of like the new sort of environment where even Elon Musk sort of gives their kids uh, the freedom to do their own thing. Like I'm sure you've heard about his own 
like school structured. He made a he school, had, right? He did make a yeah. school where he puts his own own children through it, and it's sort of like it's not sort of as as regimented as say a normal um, public school or private school in the United States. It's sort of you have a lot more freedom to um, sort of explore what you like, find what you're good at, and then sort of go from there. Uh, would you say you had that? sort of same experience just growing up um in your family environment i think it's really hard to objectively compare upbringings and i'm not saying that that's what you're trying to do either but i think it's just pretty like parenting is really hard (laughs) and i just have to say that i think the style that my parents came up with worked out really well just for me and i would describe it generally as they would they they were pretty proactive about signing me up for things, you know, like being like, all right, here's piano lessons, here's violin lessons, here's Chinese school, here's like art camps. (laughs) Yeah, like a lot of things. And it was good for me because I think I was not particularly motivated to actively search out these kinds of things for myself. Like I'd be pretty happy just sitting around reading books all day, but it was kind of nice to you know, he, but yeah, yeah. I mean, they would put something out there and I would kind of rise, rise to the occasion and, you know, practice my piano and, and be like, yeah. and things like that. So I think they gave me a lot of opportunities to learn and explore interests in various different ways. And, um, I'm very grateful that they didn't try to pick a particular path for me. I mean, my extracurricular activities as a kid were literally all over the place from, like sports type things, music, art, um, you know, like sciencey things. Um, but I mean, my dad was a math PhD and I was always shown an aptitude for math and they could have gone the route of just putting me in rigorous math training camps, going to all these competitions starting in middle school and just really pushing me hard in one direction. And I think I, so I'm really grateful that they kind of just set out a whole array of options. And I was at one point very happy to do all of them, but eventually kind of was able to start narrowing them down myself once I, you know, developed a better sense of my actual interests. Right. No, that that's fantastic. Cool. Like the fact that you got so many different exposures growing up, um, just wanted to, to uh, dial back here, like with high school, you, you just, you mentioned like narrowing it, n- narrowing your, your options down. Would you say you had a tough decision, I guess, limiting your options after like transitioning from high school and getting into college? Yeah, I would say it was it was a it was tough, but not quite in the same existential way that deciding where to go to college or deciding where to go to high school felt. Um, I think. So I, I, yeah, I said a lot of sort of negative things about my high school earlier and just to pivot back and like highlight some of the the positive reasons, like things that ways in which it did benefit me. There were a lot of very unique and very cool types of classes there that um, I was able to get exposed to, for example, um, you know, all the AP, like biology, chemistry things, but also there were like electronics labs and robotics labs. And, um, yeah, there was like a, even a DNA science lab. I mean, it's crazy. This high school has some like biotech equipment for performing experiments, which like costs, I'm sure thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. And you get these like 
16 year olds who get to mess around with it. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I think that in high school, I sort of at one point was kind of trying to choose or decide between the life sciences and more like computer science, which I liked better. And after taking the DNA science class, I actually really hated it. And, um, wound up just sort of defaulting to the other path, which was computer science. And I'm referring to these two as kind of tracks because that's the way that the culture of the school was set up. Most people were either kind of pursuing the like engineering computer science track or pursuing the sort of med school biochem track, which in retrospect is kind of a odd dichotomy to have as a teenager where you think that these are the only two possible career paths is either computer science or med school. Uh, yeah that's it's pretty limiting that but right i think just being in such a rigorous environment did that um did that limit you from doing any extracurricular activities were you involved in anything outside of like you mentioned the the um the intense studying and all that were you able to find anything to do outside of of school and and uh, just recreationally yeah, yeah. I think the thing that really kept me sane during high school was doing sports. Um, I was on the crew team my freshman year, but then switched to track my sophomore year and found that to be a much better fit. And I really loved it. I was a pole vaulter on the team, which I never would have imagined myself doing. Um, and was like, like objectively not that good at it but for for our high school for our team um i was pretty good that's the other funny thing about the high school because everyone there was definitely not there for the sports we were all there for the academics all the sports teams are pretty open and chill to having walk-ons and people who didn't have a lot of sort of athletic experience or particular prowess um but you know i i really enjoyed that aspect of my high school career. I think most of my <laughs> best memories from high school are, are sort of on track and, you know, having that kind of ownership, I think of, I felt like it was one area of my life where I really owned all my achievements and was doing it because I wanted to and not because I was forced to. Um, and yeah, I made a lot of really close friends through, through that experience. That, no, that's, that's awesome. It's always nice that so it sounds like you you grew up very active cc you you mentioned sports academics and even um uh, music and, and arts so no it sounds like you were exposed to chinese school chinese school so exposed <laughs> to, a, to a whole bunch of different i guess stimulants so that that sounds like a great childhood um just in general here but just coming back to um so i, I understand uh with Joe, the the uh, the college admissions process may be a little bit different than uh, what you guys experience in the UK. Um, so, with uh, MIT and what whatever other schools that that you were looking to get into, CC, uh, could you uh, describe to us like what that process was like? Just sort of like the uh, with the ACT, the SAT, um, did they look at um, what I guess what did it take? For for, for not only you, but for a, a normal, um, I guess, um, de determined student to get into a school like MIT or or um, or like a Yale or, or a Harvard. Yeah. So 
A college admission process really kicks off in junior year of high school for most people, which is like the the third year before like your senior year. And so usually in the, I want to say, you know, the springtime of your junior year, people are taking their standardized tests. Um, this has actually changed in recent years. Colleges are kind of moving away from the standardized testing, but, you know, um, there's a standardized testing and um, in the summer, the applications actually open, they release that essay questions. And so most, most kids are, if you're on top of it, you're writing, starting to think about essay topics and writing drafts of your essays over the summer before the fall of senior year. And then um, in the senior year, you also have to, you have to ask for recommendation letters from some of your high school teachers or coaches or other mentors. And I think the only other factor then, which is a big factor, would be your, your GPA and your um, high school transcripts. So this um, is a sort of combined side of testing um, and just your general academic transcript alongside with the other parts where you get to really showcase your personality and who you are. That would be sort of in the essays and the personal statements. Um, and yeah, it's it's weird because I think it's so it doesn't because the process is pretty complicated and very customized. I think it makes it pretty opaque and kind of hard to figure out like why some people got into some schools and some people didn't. Um, especially at my high school, it was a very very stressful and kind of socially awkward time when all the admissions results were rolling back in because I went to high school with a lot of very like smart and capable people and who I think would have been capable of doing well and excelling academically at the different schools but some sometimes they just mm. would get in or wouldn't get in and it felt like kind of a crap shot um <laughs> was it quite a, a toxic period then would you say was there any uh friction or just awkward yeah kind of a lot of awkwardness um i was actually i mean i know for a fact that i think almost i think it's something like 50 percent or more percentage of my high school year applied to mit and i think there were something like 10 of us who got in which is a very large number for most high for for just for a high school to feed into mit in general but still just a fraction of the people who did apply and it was it was kind of awkward i think i mean i i did get into most of the colleges i applied to but a lot of my closest friends definitely did not have that experience and it was pretty taxing to want to try to be supportive towards them but also knowing that they weren't necessarily the most willing to open up to you or to me because i had a hard time relating right well i guess yeah. talking, talking about your options cc um I guess what made you sort of go the route of um, MIT and uh, computer science? Yeah, I think um, computer science was sort of not a super conscious decision that I made and sort of just like a default because again, like the, <laughs> I, 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 yeah, yeah, I, left, I left my high school with this like worldview that you were either like a life sciences person or a computer science person. So. Sure. So that was a little bit skewed on my behalf. But in terms of choosing MIT, um, I knew that I wanted to study engineering. Again, you know, I'd gone to a STEM school, so of course. But I guess 
I actually really wanted to go to more of a liberal arts kind of environment after after my high school experience because I felt like, you know, I've seen this whole like STEM heavy environment. It's so toxic, so competitive. Like I'm ready to move on to something different where people have more diverse interests, yada, yada. Um, and so really was not super interested in MIT. I only applied um, in the regular decision round, not the early decision round kind of as a afterthought just to give myself some more options. But I think um, visiting MIT during during the admits weekend made me realize that I think all those negative parts of my high school, the toxicity, the sort of lack of diversity, um, those were not really things that are necessarily come with all sort of STEM engineering focused high schools. Like it's possible to still have a help like or somewhat of a more healthy and balanced culture um, and, and nice like social things and people you get along with and all that, like it, um, it could still be a positive experience for me. Um, and, and actually like, I think that that made a big difference, but also what I realized or kind of thought through at the time was that part of the, part of what I thought would be nice about going to MIT where people did share similar academic interests to myself was that it would give me, it would force me to kind of differentiate myself or sort of develop other aspects of my identity in the sense that I think mm. going to a liberal arts school where engineering students are so few and far between, I think, I would have gone back into that mode of being in middle school or elementary school where I would be like, yeah, I'm the nerd, I'm the engineer, and that sort of becomes your personality. Whereas at MIT, everyone's a nerd and everyone's an engineer. And so if you also do have an interest in, say, literature or an interest in music or those sorts of then become the parts of your identity that differentiate you. And and I was sort of more into that model where, you know, I, I'm like, yeah, I'm an engineer, but I don't want that to be just the way that everyone thinks of me. I'd rather, you know, be unique and other. So part of it was like part of it was like, I want to go in somewhere where I could be seen as the same, but it will motivate you to to kind of be different yeah yeah environment, yeah right? i i was pretty pretty tired i mean that's, even that's at my good. high school i was always sort of seen as like oh yeah you're like the smart one with a good gpa and all that and i was like i want to go somewhere where finally like i'm not always just like the the smart person in the room and people can <laughs> see me as like you know someone else who like i don't know just a, just a regular person you know regular old joe who likes likes cooking and yeah likes music and all these things yeah. right You've gone to MIT to sort of develop that, I guess, like more niche side of yourself. I, so now you're coming on in your last year of college here, doing your postgraduate. Uh, have you? Would you say you've found that sort of niche about yourself? About yourself that that little liberal artsy side. Have you sort of embraced that at all since you know? Yeah. So so now that MIT has like chewed me up and spit me out on the other side, almost. Uh, <laughs> I do feel like I've I'd gotten what I kind of envisioned out of MIT. I mean, clearly not in the way that I imagined it. But um, for example, um, from my freshman year, I joined this community at MIT called Concourse, which is kind of a, a community of like 50 or so freshmen every year who 
are, are taught their classes using the sort of liberal arts, like small classroom, core classes kind of model. And we all sit in this ancient Greek philosophy class together. And so it kind of does attract a crowd of people who are, you know, very talented in the STEM in engineering because they, you know, clearly got into MIT, but are also, you know, pretty existential and like thinking about the meaning of life and things like that. So a lot of my closest friends have come mm. out of that. Um, I've also always been a part of a community at MIT called French House, which is a group of people who get together. And the thing that binds us together is not really French, but our mutual love of food and cooking. Um, and so I've really just found a lot of different small communities where I feel like I've been able to really feel like myself and not, you know, kind of really be out there with those weirder aspects of personality that mm. make me unique. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like that's that's the whole college experience. The, the fact that you're doing that at, at MIT is just phenomenal. Um, right, just, I guess, moving uh, a step forward here, just want to really emphasize your, your time at, at MITCC. Um, could you mm-hmm. sort of walk us through a, a quick day in the life, um, I guess, that you have at the moment, that you have right now, just sort of to help us like see what is the difference between going to say a, a normal college and then say a, a college like a MIT or um, or Harvard? Yeah, so I mean, right now I'm in a co-op program for my master's. So day in life is kind of just get up, go to work, come back, <laughs> sleep, repeat. But um, I think uh, going scrolling back to pre-COVID times around my sophomore year, which would, would have been what I considered a normal day in the life of a MIT student, um, I think I usually took about four or five classes per semester um, and would spend, you know, get up in the mornings, make myself breakfast. Sometimes I'd like pack myself lunch for the day and then head off to campus. And um, yeah, so we usually have like two or three classes in the day and then um, eat lunch, hang out on campus work on my problem sets throughout the day. I think that was kind of a me thing because most people kind of are on the late night problem set solution kind of person, but I'm, a, I'm a early to bed. Like yeah, I'm, a, I'm an early to bed. My brain stops working after about 10 p.m. So I always try to cram in the piece at work uh, during the day, during breaks, um, things like that. And then in the evenings, I'd, I'd come home to my dorm and we had communal dinner every night at 6.15, sort of my replacement of the dining hall experience. I hate the dining halls, always, always ate home-cooked meals with my group, which was really nice. And usually had um, extracurriculars in the in the evenings. So I'd spend, you know, I'd leave the house after dinner and either go to my solar car club and work on, uh, work on projects there or go to choir practice for a couple of hours. And, and then come home around 10.30 and kind of hit the sack from there. That was when a lot of the, I actually think I did miss out on a lot of social interactions because most people kind of came back at 10 p.m. and that was when they started grinding together on the on the problem sets, but I was always like, I pass out and then start over the next day. Yeah, that sounds super productive. <laughs> sounds quite nice. It sounds quite pleasant, doesn't it, Bill? Like, yeah, I would feel, am I, would, would you have times where, you know, I think, I think the, funny, would, yeah, the like... funny thing about college for me was that it was the first time in my life where I had a lot of free time, but there was so many things that you could do with your free time as well. 
that I just everyone kind of just goes around of cramming all their free time completely full so that despite having all this quote unquote free time, you actually end up with no free time at all because your schedule is blocked out, you know, to the 30 minutes every day. So, right. Well, that makes sense. Mm. You know, with so many clubs, you know, if you have an hour a day where you're just sitting around doing nothing, you feel like you should be doing something. So you end up signing up for one more club or, you know, signing up for one more um, officer position or another leadership position such that you're like always right. booked to the max. Right. It's, it's no longer, I guess it goes back to your childhood when I guess your parents would always sort of, you know, enlist you in that. Now, now you're in the position where it's like, you know, you want to be doing it to myself. Doing all, yeah, you're just <laughs> naturally, systematically just, you know, <laughs> listing. Yeah. Yeah. Enlisting yeah. 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 No, that, that's yeah, awesome. That's Everyone's super busy all the time. Right. COVID, and COVID actually has been, I think, a rather jarring break from that routine where all of a sudden you just have hours in the day where nothing's happening. But it's been kind of, I think, a healthy balance thing, something bringing, bringing that previous lifestyle into balance a bit where it is kind of insane to just always be booked and always be kind of on the grind and never having time to just like, you know, sit down and do nothing, I think. I think that's a healthy thing to have as well in your schedule. I, I, I think so. I mean, do you have weekends for yourself, Cece? Would you say like you still manage that that sort of open open time frame for yourself? Yeah, these days I've I've been much more in the mindset of you know leaving evenings and weekdays just free, and you know if I end up having plans to meet up with somebody, that's cool. If I don't have any plans, then I'll just you know do whatever I want and sort of that. That aspect of spontaneity, I think, is something that I did miss a little bit in my first few years at MIT, where, you know, everything was always planned um, ahead of time. Right. Uh, absolutely. There are times um, when I was just wondering, like, if there were times where you thought this is, you know, you get peaks and troughs with your yeah. workload sometimes. With, especially with exams and stuff, did it become overbearing at any points where you thought you questioned, whereas like you questioned yourself and thought like, yeah, yeah, I definitely or, hit like a you know. big burnout my junior fall. Um, I think kind of accumulated over the course of like, um, having always just like worked super hard and then, um, you know, over the summer, like also working over the summer. And I didn't really go home the summer between my junior year and sophomore year. It was like, went to solar car for a couple of weeks of just working and then internship and then, um, and then flew straight back to campus and then started this like very rigorous semester. Um, and at the end of the semester, I was pretty burned out. And so I think that was the first time where I left the winter break. Usually I, I would have, you know, tried to, travel somewhere over winter break or pick up a small job or something like that. But I, I really just left the winter break to be living on campus with my friends and have no plans. And I think for, for me, that was the first time I'd really just done that. I sort of admitted, like, I really just don't want to do, have any commitments. Um, sure. Yes. So that's the way for you to prevent the burnout for next time if yeah you i think if i were to do it again i think i would have built that more sort of incrementally scattered throughout my schedule um and you know realized that i guess i guess for me it was the first time i'd really hit my limit in terms of um the amount of productivity i could like squeeze out of myself and how do you know how do you know that was your limit though i think i think that was you know 
before all you know in all my life before i always kind of felt like i could keep proving myself more like you know like give me more i can do it give me more like i can and i would keep sort of as the bar was raised i would keep rising up to meet the bar and never really felt a limit in that sense like it was always just i was limited basically by other people's expectations um but but after that fall you know i sort of had been raising the bar throughout mit as well in terms of like slowly upping my course load and my commitments to extracurriculars, you know, taking on more leadership positions and things like that. But I think at the end of that, that fall semester, I, I think I really felt like I did not want any more commitments or any more, like I was pretty done with proving myself. I was like, okay, you know, I think if anybody tries to shovel more responsibilities onto my plate, I'm just going to say no. Like, I, in fact, I wanted absolutely no responsibilities whatsoever, which is what I gave myself that month. But um, I think that for me, it was a kind of turning point in that, you know, from now on, like, I've proven to myself, I guess, what the amount that I can do. And so I no longer feel the need to push myself or be pushed by others to like that sort of, you know, extreme way of proving yourself you know because i feel like i've 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 proven myself and and now i just can really do what i want instead of you know just proving myself uh pushing myself your own schedule. Yeah. right and I'm, I'm sure that 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 road of of pushing yourself is gonna it's never winding hope apparently <laughs> uh, right just coming back uh to you cc just uh, with you and and your in your background, um, you did mention that you're currently doing um, an internship uh, during your postgraduate. Um, you're, could you tell us a little bit about um, what you're working with, um, and I guess wh why you chose that sort of uh, sort of uh, I guess um, field? Yeah. So so right now my um, my studies in undergrad sort of ranged across the spectrum from software development and data science towards like very nitty-gritty like circuit design um signal processing all all within the electrical engineering and computer science field which is like super super broad and you know i've worked in various internships ranging from mobile app development for and to you know hardware design at Apple, um, sort of working on the chips that go in the iPhones, to working on the electronics and the circuits that are launched in telecommunication satellites. And so it's been like kind of a lot of various different experiences. I've, in fact, I've had a very hard time kind of narrowing down exactly what I want to do with my field and my degree, because honestly, it's, it's so broad. Um, but my current master's work is, um, working on a project that sort of covers a pretty wide spectrum of topics um, because it is a machine learning project tr applied to power of electronics and the design of um, circuits and power supplies. It's like pretty cool. I think it's a good fit for me because it is pretty exploratory and cross-disciplinary and I do feel like I'm making use of all those various uh, pretty broad broad classes and, and coursework and experiences that I had throughout my undergrad um, and is pretty like systems level as well. So I think, yeah, I think my experience has enabled me to be pretty useful in a systems kind of context where you're not just focusing on how to optimize this particular tiny circuit inside the whole system, but kind of 
looking at the whole system, both from the hardware and software end, and trying to figure out the smart decisions. Right. To well, make um, what kind of system is it? Is it a computer system? Is it um, a vehicle system? Yeah, I think I think yeah. So just to be a little more concrete, like when I say systems, for example, when I was on the solar car team on my school, we had the the whole car was sort of a system on itself, and there were the mechanical systems, you know, the brakes and the suspension and the aerodynamics side of it, but even within just the electrical system, um, we had you had to design the circuit boards that would actually like say drive the motor or interface with a battery pack you also had to write the software the code that ran on those microcontrollers and actually say you know uh, implemented the logic of you know when the driver turns on the light signal it's going to flash this led um wow things like that so the ecu so you built your own ecu i'm sorry ecu yeah oh sorry so it's like a from for the uh internal combustion engine equivalent control unit so we didn't so we we bought our motor and we bought the inverter that sort of drives the motor but there we had to implement the kind of uh communication logic that uh went talked Mm -hmm. to the inverter and you know set the speed and set the power and things like that um all right, so it sounds like you're working. Are you working strictly with? Uh, is it electric vehicles? Yeah, these days the the work that I'm doing right now is it's pretty researchy, and so there's there's no like one specific consumer end application. But you know, a power supply is like a DC 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 converter, so it will take some voltage, say from a battery pack, like a super high, like 100 volts or something like that, and convert it down to uh, a much lower voltage, say like one volt that can be used more by like uh, logic level and end sort of devices like chips and, and logic gates and things like that. So power supplies are everywhere from automotive to industrial to consumer to communications type applications. And so it's a pretty general purpose project. Yeah. Well, interesting. But just going sort of away from, from the technical side here. Um, so I guess working with electric vehicles ha- has that sort of helped you realize the importance um of the future of cars and, and say where we're going um environmentally uh, has is that like a backwards driver or is it is, is it just something that like because you're because you're phenomenal at it is that why you focus on it or is it sort of another underlying reason or multiple yeah, I think working with the solar car team at MIT was pretty it was pretty inspirational I think to sort of see that yeah, a group of college students with this sort of interest in vehicles and interest in sustainability as well like it's something that kind of is doable with like this kind of team effort and you know as as representatives of the solar car team we were often invited to these sorts of energy conferences that were held on campus or, or types of energy awareness nights. And I think it was a, yeah, meeting people through those venues who also shared an interest in sort of electrification and the future, just the future of the ability of technology to kind of drive us towards a greener future. I think it was pretty, pretty inspirational. Yeah. Uh, no pun intended. <laughs> no, we're all yeah, about no the pun puns. Intended. We're all about the puns here. <laughs> yeah, uh, we're right. <laughs> uh, right. I guess. The, 
because the electric vehicle trend at the moment um i don't know if you know but like it's causing a lot of bottlenecks in like the yeah. microchip demand and stuff do you think that's a huge challenge for us in the future because you know crypto using it phones use it of course laptops you mentioned before all sorts of applications need some kind of chip so how do we how do you think we might have to overcome yeah this, i think um uh, huge in the tech industry as a whole i think we're kind of in the previous years and part of the reason why honestly computer science as a major is so popular is that there's been this large push towards like software making software for everything like writing code for everything integrating integrating code basically into all all different aspects of our lives and our devices and i think we're kind of hitting a point in the industry now where the demand bottleneck is much swinging much more towards the hardware and towards the semiconductor side of things and in fact you know there, there's a bit of a lag between that delay and the ability of colleges and universities to produce engineers with this certain set of skills because the um, most universities now have sort of uh, transitioned to supporting the demand for software engineers and that computer science departments everywhere are like oversubscribed and people are going for that. But I think we probably will see in, in, in the few years, hopefully, that um, American schools and universities will start producing more um, electrical engineers and hardware designers as well. Right. I, I, Do you think that's driven by like the, the sorry the salary? Because you mentioned like a lot of people oversubscribing the course. Um, is it related to the crazy salaries that uh, some of these graduates are getting that. Yeah, know, yeah. I've, I've always seen this Google. kind of odd disconnect at my internships where people in hardware departments kind of complain about how hard it is to find qualified engineers and people who are like qualified hard, hardware engineers are like in super hard demand and being poached left and right by these different companies. But at the same time, and, and yeah, and so a lot of companies end up hiring like immigrants, people from like China, India, who were, and, and I think. Those countries have much stronger, more robust kind of hardware design programs in their universities. But on the other hand, like at the same time, while there's this seems to be this large demand, I think software engineers are still paid better paid than than hardware engineers in, in most companies. Massively, right? Yeah, yeah. there's a pretty uh, big difference. So, so I don't know. I think maybe maybe these days, as sort of the immigration policies seem to be tightening up a little bit, maybe there'll be more motivation to kind of uh, domestically create hardware, qualified hardware, hardware people. But no, don't um, don't don't get us started on the education system. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely for sure. Though I mean, a lot of people are are motivated to join computer science these days because the salaries are so high, but. Six figures straight out college. Why yeah, not? Yeah. And that I mean that is the trend too, right? It's it's not it's not like it's going anywhere else but computer science and you know tech. So it's pretty interesting. Um, I guess for for UCC, do you see yourself? Um, I guess in the future, still working with electric vehicles, or um, are you still sort of feeling your way out in terms of uh, where you want to be professionally? Yeah, I'm pretty interested in sorts of sort of, um, I guess not not necessarily directly electric vehicles, but things that I would consider to be in a in a similar 
uh, type of work and also type of impact, I guess. I, I did enjoy, I had a experience at a satellite, uh, at a startup company that builds satellites for, for telecommunication. And um, I, I think, you know, automotive and space are both kinds of spaces where I think your work has a potential to kind of push the boundaries of technology, but also make a positive impact on society. Um, and, and I do, I do envision myself trying to stay in that type of space. Um, yeah. Speaking of space, did you have any like opinions on Starlink? Oh, Starlink. Um, I don't know about opinions, but, uh, it's, it's, it's one of those large technology projects where I think it's, pretty it's pretty crazy that like it's able to be accomplished by like a private company like by that point the private company has grown to having such amount of such a huge amount of resources and leverage and power that you know they're literally able to send up like this massive band of satellites that's just going to be circling yeah like, uh, so in that sense it, some sometimes I, it feels a little bit like um just like crazy um kind of dystopian in a sense but yeah because um, i had the i had the thought of like we, we opening up these new questions like who owns space because if if spacex you know hoard a certain amount of um space in space yeah. sorry i didn't think i'd ever say that but you know what about russia or china do they want a piece of theirs you know it's yeah these yeah, questions are quite interesting uh, too. These days, I mean, it really is the the private companies, usually U.S. ones, who are out there, kind of, you know, pushing pushing these types of things. But it's it's weird to think about. I think in the future, there's going to be a lot more development toward towards that um, that end. Right, for for sure. Um, but just so obviously, CC, you're very um, you're a very busy person. You have a very busy um, uh, a trajectory ahead of you. Uh, how do you? I guess you mentioned about the extracurricular stuff uh, that you do. Um, I guess, is there anyone that you sort of really um, have really developed a liking to just because, you know, it sort of helps you, you know, get away from all the, uh, uh, all the work that, that you're, you know, you're experiencing during your master's? Yeah, one, one thing, one extracurricular that I kind of have developed while I'm at MIT is like singing in, in choirs. Um, so I've been a part of the MIT concert choir here, and I think I like it for a lot of the same reasons that I liked track back in high school and that, you know, we're not Juilliard, <laughs> we're a pretty small school. And, and so the very little pressure to kind of be the best or be state of the art or, or be like, you know, be there for the sake of like making objectively the greatest music or whatever. And people are kind of just there to because they enjoy enjoy singing, enjoy making music with other people, and enjoy socializing. So mm, just let loose, just go. Yeah, and yeah, and it's and it and it's been fun for me to kind of be vulnerable in that sense because you know you kind of have to get up on the stage and put yourself out there and perform. And even though you know that you don't have necessarily the voice of an angel, but you know just have a good time <laughs> and try to share it with other people. Like I don't know about um, you guys, but some of these societies at university right the people who run them like take them way too seriously <laughs> and then it kind of like debtors a lot of involvement and inclusion because for example at my school like the business school i like 
they're really like yeah. i swear they wanted to do finance since they were like nine and then like they trade like real money and stuff with the, oh the university budgets like 100k onwards and and they take it so seriously like did was that um did you have anything like that at mit where you know the people who ran these things were like too too yeah for sure i mean so i there's a lot of different um different clubs at mit and and some of them have reputations for like taking themselves much too seriously for what they are which is like bunch of sleep deprived students trying to like put things together but i think for the most part like one of the things that i do like about the student culture is that um with you know people put so much dedication and effort into their school work that there there is a space for a lot of clubs where people kind of just are doing things as a as a way to like blow off steam and, and have some fun and relax so right. i i kind of yeah I selectively joined clubs, I think, where the, the atmosphere was like, you know, low standards, low expectations. Not not um, like pitch perfect. That, that like the way you guys described mm-hmm. it, I just thought of pitch perfect. Like it's Oh my god, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I I have one of some of my one of my friends, um, really good friends is in one of the acapella groups at MIT. And I think they're like quite brilliant, but there there's also, you know, it is MIT and so the standards like or perhaps a little lower compared to say like right. i don't know the berkeley school of music that's across the river from us oh yeah, that, yeah, yeah that, i think there's yeah. i think the value of it you know we're an academic institution people are just there to like learn and have fun so they're definitely getting out mm-hmm. of it what they wanted for some of our listeners who, who are listening who are prospective students you know what would you like to say and think not everything at mit's you know at the you know, as, as intense as it should be, do you have anything to maybe relate to those people who are looking at, um, you know, going into this sort of Yeah, I uh, think um, what I would say is you should never, like, oh, well, how do I want to phrase this? How, how do I want to phrase this? Okay, yeah, what I want to say is that you should really only hold yourself to your own standards and not try to compare yourself to what other people are doing because there are like super geniuses out there and there are also people who you know are just trying to like take a chill time and so you should find i think find find a community for yourself where you don't feel pressured by what other people are doing and i think you will be able to find a community of people with like similar life goals and and things like that and and so Mm -hmm. Yeah, don't just don't feel pressure to compare yourself to others, and really take time and you know find those people who you feel comfortable around and build those relationships with them. Because at the end of the day, like you might not remember a lot of the stuff you learned from classes or all those nights that you like spent working really hard and the stress and everything. But what you'll walk away with, I think, is you know a better sense of who you are and and a lot of friends and, and i think those two things are both very tied to like you know spending time with the right people wow yeah absolutely that's so true <laughs> well would you say cc that that uh you're, you're still progressively sort of i guess i mean it, it, it's it's always easier like it's always easier to say something rather than to do it. Would you say you're sort of finding um, that 
that sort of route for yourself at the moment? Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, a lot of the times I feel super old and crusty because I've been like, you know, I'm here and I was senior, but I'm like, oh my God. Yeah. But I'm 21 <laughs> years old. It's like not, <laughs> it, it's really not that deep. No, <laughs> um, I'm like definitely still trying to 21. sort out like, you know, how to prioritize, you know, your community and your friends. Um, how, yeah, how to make sure that those are definitely an active priority and not just an afterthought. Um, so. Right. Well, uh, the maturity is definitely there, Cece. No matter how much you, uh, I guess you tried to uh, uh, limit yourself here. But right, I just want to thank you so much for your time here. Uh, we, we understand you are on a very busy schedule, speaking of. So uh, we do want to thank you once again. Um, and right, do you have any, uh, I guess, ending uh, points that, that you want to, to make here, not necessarily towards the audience, but just um, as, a, as a last statement here? Yeah, just, you know, I think one of the things I've learned after working my butt off for many years is you got to like really get into your schedule to like have fun and just relax. Yeah, it's the, the nice thing about like, you know, got to enjoy it. Abs absolutely. <laughs> and sing a few songs, I guess, right? With, with uh, your choir yeah. homies. Yeah, don't be afraid to to sing and sound bad. <laughs> you know, it's uh, just as long as you're having fun. You know, that's all that matters. Yeah, thank thanks uh, thanks very much. Uh, some really good takeaways there. Um, definitely learned a lot um, of insights of of what it would be like to to be at such a you know prestigious but yeah, rigorous school. Thanks for thanks, thanks for very talking much, uh, with me with you. Absolutely, and we also want to thank our listeners here for giving us another. Um, I guess showing um, if you are interested in, in contacting CC you can definitely uh, give us a, uh, a message either at our gmail at that's one mate one dude at gmail.com or um, sh feel free to shoot us a message or DM us at uh, IG that's one mate dot one dude um, on IG and then right just want to thank you guys so much for listening to us again thank you to CC for her time here today and right, have a great one and catch you next time.